Okay, we've kind of seen the breakdown with generalisations of middle class, but more in particular working class and uh, public housing. Sorry for the... The language is not the right language, but no one seems to come up with the right language of how you can describe public housing people without feeling like it's derogatory. So um, I just am with everyone else and so lamenting that. Okay, okay, so what's some... How can we go forward? One is, I think, in light of what I've just talked about, um, uh, working in the West, uh, you've got to cast a vision for mission in the West clearly. You know, it always begins with vision, we know that. But uh, it's about winning the multicultural West for tying the big vision of God's plan with where you're at and who you are. So that this is our time, these are our people. Um, and that usually the West is, is a launch pad to move somewhere else, right? Uh, but what you need, you need to help them realize, and what I say to them is this, there is no place on the face of the earth more important than this place for God and his purposes. And help them realize that this is not the younger brother, you know, the weaker brother of some other place, a launch pad for another. This is the field of God. This is a generation, and we've got responsibility for him. So I'll just pass around our vision mission statement. This is about, this is quite a few years old now, and I didn't give you the nice version of it. There's, only, there's not enough. I, I thought there was only 15 coming. So um, in there, actually, can I just have a look? On the left-hand side, on the inside, at point number two, I think it is. Yeah, point number two. This will be a little example of what I mean in, in written form. You know, we're committed to serving Western Sydney, Remember, we've got a regional ministry, so you may want to call. We're committed to serving Western Sydney by sharing our Lord and Saviour as the only way of salvation. We understand that each of us is directly responsible for our generation. This is our time, and this area is our first concern. We are focused on reaching people from within a region rather than immediate locality, from Parramatta to Penrith and from Kellyville to Hoxton Park. We long to see people transformed through Jesus for God's glory. We are jealous for God's honour and we are convicted that he has the right to be glorified in this part of his will. So nothing fancy there. You know, I was really hoping that God was going to send me to New York, but I ended up back in Rudy Hill. That's, that's the way it goes. So it's about tying. I mean, that's just a statement. That means nothing, right, if you just put it on print. It's about articulating the vision, communicating the vision, Living out the vision, celebrating the vision. You know the four things about vision. Uh, Andy Stanley's got some good stuff on that. Love Andy. Now, um, and so that's the first thing you've got to do. They need to see that this is the mission field. And almost there's a, usually there's a, um, uh, not an embarrassment, but um, a, a lack of pride about where they're at. And, um, and they need to see it not in terms of, you know, it's the best place in the world, because it ain't. There are lots of prettier places, and I say it. I just keep harping. There is no place more important to God than this part of his world to reach Jesus. Okay, so that's casting out the vision. I can't labor anything now because of time. Preaching the word. We, are, uh, we as Christians are unapologetic, unapologetically a people of the book. Oh, sorry. Where's the screen? Um, we are people who are unapologetically a people of the book. But we happen to minister to people where the Bible is the only book they read. Like, I don't know how many times I've had that say, but the Bible's the only book I've ever read. <laughs> and, um, and so there's, we've talked about the, there's a wide range of reading skills. And, uh, and I've picked, talked to you about, keep thinking about if you're not a mechanical person, what it's like for you when you lift up the hood of an engine when there's something wrong. That's how they feel and, uh, about, about book comprehension, things like that. Now, 
Hence, one of the critical values is being clear and being concrete. Now, it feels like I'm saying something very obvious, but I really got to thump this because you got no idea. The reason why I'm in ministry, because I got tired of sitting under sermons. I just didn't understand. I just couldn't understand. And look, I, was at, I went to university. I got three degrees. I'm not stupid. I might be the smartest kid in town, but and, and it's because there was a lack of clarity uh, in the preaching. And, uh, and so you need to keep working on that. I fall into bad habits. And clarity at all levels, uh, preaching small groups, one-to-one in our communication. And i tell you why it's important, a couple of reasons. One, many people come from churches, uh, especially the Orthodox Catholic ones, where um, they've injected a whole lot of mystery in, into, the, into Christianity that they've kind of, they just ha- have been trained not to understand. And we had a, uh, our little motto for a long time was taking the mystery out of Christianity because that's what they keep saying. Like, like that guy said, we had all the pieces, Ray. We just couldn't put it together. And, and, it's so be- and then the penny drops. And like I said, it's usually justification by faith and substitutionary atonement. And then they're off. They've understood grace and you can't hold them back. Okay, the other thing is many of them had negative experiences in the education system. Uh, and so being clear becomes critical. Third is it's, it's a biblical mandate. Colossians 4.4. 4. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And what's 1 Corinthians 14? The whole chapter is about no, intelligent, no, no, no understanding equals no edification. If they don't understand, then you have failed. Okay, uh, I, I'll skip all that. It basically just tells the story. Oh, so your Bible translation's key. We were going to go down Holman and decided it's just, and we won't touch ESV, I love ESV, but we won't use it for congregational, because if you're going, you're going to go for people whose mother tongue is not English, and we've got 60%, uh, sorry, 60 cultures represented in our church, that's going to make it just a little bit too hard, the vocab's too big. We, we, we were persuaded Holman is not as bad as that, we love Holman, that's our preferred translation, but we, we realise even that's uh, slightly hard. So we're going for NIV 11. Uh, with its limitations and strengths, but that's every translation. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, the, we're going, you know, the transition, we're going to go to new NIV. Yep. Uh, core value of every teacher, uh, if they don't understand, whose fault is it? Yours. That's it. Good. Excellent. And I say that to them regularly. So they've learnt now to know that if they don't understand, they blame me. And it empowers them. See what I'm trying to do? It empowers them. Now I said, as long as you're awake. Because if you're asleep, I'm not wearing that one. You have a late night last night, you come to church and you're tired. Oh, come on. Uh, so that empowers them because I'm speaking to that, that issue that's in them. That is, I'm dumb. Because that's, that's what, we even feel we're dumb, right? You, come on. You feel dumb, right? I feel dumb half the time. You get me? I remember going back and doing an MA. I thought I felt so stupid. I thought, oh, this is what people feel like when they do Bible studies for the first time. They feel stupid. Core assumption in all of this, of course, is every biblical truth can be grasped. Every biblical truth. So if you're not from a Reformed persuasion, tolerate me for a moment, but predestination is a very simple doctrine to teach. It's the hardest one to emotionally connect with, maybe, but it is the easiest one to teach. Every biblical truth can be grasped. Do not think I'm talking about being, sim- I'm talking about being simple, but not simplistic. Because I want to give them the whole counsel of God. That's my commitment. So, simple but not simplistic. You, 
speaking in short, sharp sentences is important, finding fresh words. People think they're teaching the Bible when they use other big words, even biblical words, to explain other biblical words. That is not teaching. It's your job to find fresh words that are in our common language to explain biblical words. And, and it is, it's just, I, I hear them thinking, you notice when you're bored in a sermon, just think, are the sentences too long or are the words just too familiar? They've just gone from familiar words of the Bible to other familiar words. So they, they try to use just, explain justification by using reconciliation, thinking that's somehow explaining the, the mystery. Right, now J.C. Ryle wrote an, uh, an article, a, pa- a paper, and you'll see it in the briefing. You can just Google it, and it's free. Uh, and that's a very, you know, after... 1850? I don't know when he was around. Uh, great man, J.C. Roll. But uh, there's a very good article you wrote on being clear, and it's timeless. Even preaching in the present, remember, a lot of them live in the moment, and too many sermons sound like ancient history. So contemporary language and, and, and idioms and expressions about speaking about the past, because you're dealing with a book that's 2,000 years old at its very latest, <laughs> you know, and, and 4,000 years on the other end of that spectrum, and so it can feel like it's an ancient history subject. And so you've got to work very hard about contemporizing it, allowing it to feel like it's in the present. And that's the language you use when you're, when you're discussing uh, an ancient book. That's what it is at a, at a flat reading. And that you, it means you've got to apply, not at the end of the sermon, you've got to be applying along the way. It's got to be concrete early. <clears throat> And, you know, don't try to impress them. I can't, I've got this guy with this, who comes in once in a while and, and, and he tries to impress us with how much he knows and we're all falling asleep. When I was at college, you know, you, you get the student who's trying to impress the, the lecturers. Well, they're all asleep by giving endless footnotes in his sermons. And, and the guys who just try to keep it simple and straight and, uh, and clear are the ones that everyone gets ministered by, whether the guy's got a PhD uh, or a 15-year-old kid. Right. So, you know, even things like, you know, the original Greek word, I'm not afraid to say, look, the more literal reading of this, but I tend not to use things like the, the original Hebrew word. I didn't even go down that road. I just say, look, the more literal reading of this is, and then enjoy it. You know, just enjoy then the, what, what it is rather than thinking, oh, you've somehow got to know Greek and Hebrew to teach the Bible. I'm forever trying to attack that gap that is created. Okay, we've got to address the mind. Um, uh, I don't think applied should have been there. Actually, it should be an under will. Mm. It was late last night when I put it together. Um, so don't dumb it down. Okay, I don't want to say any more than that, I think. But remember, preaching is spoken, you know, it's, it's addressing all parts of us, the mind, the affections, and the will, uh, the inner person. And so the mind, I don't want people to go simplistic because they're Western suburbs. I want them to go simple. Um, I want them to think God's thoughts after them. After him. So that's the mind. I won't labor that. I want to address the affections. This is critical. Uh, how should I feel? You know, we want people to love what God loves and hate what God hates. I mean, when you become a Christian, you have newfound affections, don't you? And, you know, it's not only a newfound affection, I've got a, a new love for Jesus and his people, but I've got, I, found it, I, I found a newfound heart in my heart. I've got a newfound heart, for, uh, uh, hatred rather, a newfound hatred in my heart for sin. It's funny, isn't it? But you actually, it's, it's a set of affections that God wants you to have towards that which pleases him and that which grieves him. 
Remember what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his right sermon in the end? I can't remember my sermon three weeks ago. But what I can remember is the impression left. And you only leave an impression if you've addressed the mind and the affections as well as the will. Now, illustrations become important to that. Emotional language becomes important in that. Um, along the way, I, I, I describe full-bodied preaching. I mean, eye contact. I am actually not. I've been criticised for this. I've been preaching over their heads, literally by looking above them, not at them. I've, I've had to now write at the top of every sermon, eye contact, because <laughs> you get into bad habits, and it's you only have to look at one person. Everyone around thinks you're looking at them, but it's a person-to-person experience. We need to keep remembering that. Um, and because I'm not, uh, I'm not cool like John Owen, I've got a shock in memory. I can't walk around without notes. You know, I'm tied to the sucker. <laughs> um, the power of the pause becomes critical. Uh, hand movements. We had a guy, a student minister. He's now a missionary in Chile. And Stephen Sheed preached his first sermon like this. He didn't move his hands. Now, I've got 80 people. Most of them are Middle Easterners. We, we couldn't work out how you can talk and not move your hands. But he did it. Now, this guy is a really gifted guy and very teachable. Gave him some feedback. Next sermon, he's trying to move it. God bless him. It was awkward, but he was trying. But about the third sermon, he was getting into it. It was a bit natural. It's full-bodied preaching. Uh, and most of all, and uh, Chester picks this up as his first point, passion. But I think I, I don't want to use passion. I want to use conviction because I've learned... You can get different people. Their emotional range is actually different. Mine's larger. Uh, you know, I, I tend to, I can't express an opinion without sounding like it's a dogma. <laughs> you know, just my volume is different. And, and you have to still be you. It's, it's truth through your personality. I don't want you to not be someone else. But do you know Simon Manchester? You, would, would you have heard him? Okay. Um, uh, done lots of church plants and effective minister in North Sydney. And I think of my friend Archie Poulos, who lectures at Moore College, who's Greek, and kind of cries in every sermon. And their emotional range is really quite different. But what they both share is a very clear conviction when they preach. You know they mean what they say. Now, they communicate in slightly different ways. All I'm saying is, I've had people at church say, you know, the preacher doesn't look like he believes what he's saying. Um, and the reality is, you have to turn the volume up. Uh, it's just the nature with working with because they are emo- they tend to be a bit more emotional in the way they communicate. So if you're kind of too reserved, it looks like you're not serious. And so turn it up. Um. No, no, no. Middle class. Yes. So, oh, you're trying to manipulate me. You're being, you know. And so I, I had a student minister once came up and said, right, I feel like, no, I'm just being me, right? I'm not bunging it on. It's me. You know, I can't not be me. But she was overwhelmed by um, the fact that I was addressing her affections and her emotions. She was almost uncomfortable because she'd sat under preaching that had never addressed her emotions. It was kind of like a strange concept for her. And I said, you know, my job is actually to address your, the word addresses your mind, your affections, and your will. So um, she said, you know, I like it, but I'm a little bit afraid of it. And I said, and I think the thing is, um, you know, we can all tell that story that pulls heartstrings. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about grounding 
the, the, um, the illustration may kind of connect emotionally with the doctrine, but I want the emotion to spring from the doctrine. And you can know the difference. Sometimes I've used illustrations gratuitously, right? And you think, you know, I feel really cheap and nasty after that one because I think I just went for the emotion and not the reality uh, of it. And, uh, and I, I, what I'm trying to ground it in the, in the proposition and let the illustration simply connect with the emotional aspect of that doctrine. Okay, I'm sorry, i just got to keep moving. Uh, address the will. Um, uh, you know, we preach for repentance and faith, which doesn't mean a conversion. Uh, it's, it's conversion and a life lived in ongoing trust and repentance. And um, that's why don't leave your applications to the end. It has to be concrete. Your language has to be concrete. They need to see what it looks like. Here's a statistic for you. Harvard Business Review did a study and showed that 95% of people can't apply a principle. They need to see what it looks like. Well, forget working class. We're talking upper class need that as much. Now, when I heard that, I was really convicted. And interestingly, when Mark Driscoll came to town a few years ago, he had a go at us Sydney Anglicans, and he was right on most of the stuff, I think. But the thing that nailed me was he said, you Sydney Anglicans, you, you don't, there's not enough missional, preaching in your preaching you're not missional in your preaching you know you're not connecting god's great purposes with where you're at i'm guilty of that you're not apologetic enough you're not speaking to the unbelievers and the friends of unbelievers when you're preaching and the third thing was he said you're not applied enough you're not showing what it looks like and the more post-christian we get the more this is going to become a big issue because you know in the old days when a middle-class Christian got the gospel, they, they had basically a, a structure and a worldview that was essentially consistent with it. But now, everything's up in the air. You know, more and more, everything's up in the air. You can't you, you assume a lot less. So let's go back to that quote. 95% of people can't apply a principle. And you know what? It's so true. Uh, someone was telling me the other day, Actually, Richard, you were. We had a really lovely discussion about something. I said, what would be an example of that? Because <laughs> I needed to see, I, I could sense I was halfway there, and then when he, you gave me a really good example of whatever the issue was. And Ah, oh, now I understand. Right, this is what it looks like. So sometimes it's illustrative, sometimes it's implication, sometimes it's application. Now I know what you're talking about. Now we're on the same page. Now, and that's, and that's very helpful for people whose language is not English, um, uh, they can stay with you a lot longer. So I just thought arbitrarily, oh, when I preach through Zechariah, Zechariah, not an easy book to preach through, apocalyptic, Old Testament, whoa. And um, uh, Zechariah 5.3, and he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land, for according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished, and according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. Two commandments are highlighted, the eighth and ninth, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. To break any of them is to invoke the curse of the law. The scroll of God's law enforced both on God's people and on the world. I'm just running through the, how the sermon goes. Judgment begins with the household of God. When God comes to his people, sin's got to go. They're the two issues in mind. And then, and then, so at that point I'm thinking, okay, I can't go too long without nailing that. Okay, so I want to apply now that whole issue of the eighth, you know, about thou shalt not steal, the whole thing about stealing. Especially because I'm in, I'm in a very abstract book, so I'm particularly sensitive to it. Remember, this is about the third sermon. And, um, and so I think, I think I'm going to nosedive into, into uh, the whole issue of thieving. 
Well, I never see myself as a thief. You know, I can't remember. When I was four, I stole a wagon wheel once, and then I returned it because I was feeling guilty. I don't think. And then I came across this, and I just rattled them off. This is, okay, maybe you don't consider yourself as a thief. See if any of these uh, ring your bells. Have you ever intentionally caught a train without a railway ticket? Claiming government benefits you're not entitled to. Not disclosing all your income when filing your tax return. Not paying your bills on time when you uh, can afford to. Keeping that $2,000 you found in a brown paper bag. I love that one. <laughs> not handing in lost property. Wasting your employer's time uh, that he's paying you for. Being careless and extravagant with the use of employees' stationery. Not returning what you've borrowed. Not repairing or replacing something you have borrowed and damaged. Borrowing some, something without asking the owner. Not paying someone for what you owe them when, when you can. Taking a sick when you're not sick. Over-servicing a customer. Lying about the quality of goods you one sells. I just sold my car. I'm feeling a little bit guilty. Underpaying people you employ or subcontract. Well, that got the entrepreneurs. Downloading music for the internet without paying the appropriate free fee. Breaking copyright. Using dishonest weight scales. Keeping the, charge, keeping the change when you realise that it was too much at the shops. Not telling your bank that they made an error in your favour. Winning a gambling bet. Making an insurance claim that you weren't entitled to. Not giving at church. Now... Bang, I just, I just rattle through them very slowly and just let the word sink. Now, I'm teaching them a whole lot of things in those applications without much effort. Now, I'm not going to stay there. I then went on to talk about grace and how the last person Jesus forgave before he died was a thief at the cross, and uh, we went down that road. But, but I, I just thought it was, I'm, I need to nail this down a bit. I need to sort of find flesh on it and in the process hit a lot of applications that people would never think would be, you know, what the Lordship of Jesus looked like in that area. Okay, preaching consistently well is critical for your congregation to gain confidence. They're really embarrassed. To, you know, they get one shot at bringing someone to church. They need to know that the pulpit's consistently clear and engaging. Uh, preaching to the outsiders is critical, so that even if the outsider isn't there, you're preaching in such a way that my friend, my, the member of the congregation wants to think that if I brought my working-class friend that, that the pastor is answering his or her questions. Okay, that's about preaching. I'll move on. I'm afraid to ask questions. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. I haven't got the time. Okay, one question if there's one. You can disagree too. It's a free country. Is it hot in here? Okay. Right. Next, personal impact of pastors. Uh, we know 95% of a qualification of an elder is 1 Timothy 3, Timothy, uh, Titus 1. So it's about character and um, conduct. <laughs> Just one little thing about competence, apt to teach. Uh, the who, you get the feeling, is even more important than the what. And, and I think we just forget this, that in having a word-centered priority ministry, we forget imitation theology. It tends to be more the Catholics do it, but Philippians 4.9 Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And Paul says to the congregations, follow the example of your leaders. So whether you like it or not, you are invited to be a three-dimensional expression of the word of God for them. Uh, we learn how to live not just in the classroom but in the relationships that we're in. So that's why the whole apprenticeship model is the right model for discipleship. While it's word, it's, it's word and word enfleshed. That's why, for example, why is it, I think I read an article once, it showed that middle-class churches can have a ratio of 1 to 150 for a minister, that is one minister for every 150 people, but working-class churches need a ratio of 1 to 100. 
Any ideas why that might be the case? Now, I'm quoting some statistics somewhere, but why might you think that would be the case? Wonder why. It, I think it's tied up in that, yeah. Partly it's a non-book culture, so I remember, remember Barbara Theory? After I soon became a Christian, I went to a class that she was running in a workplace. She's quite a liberal, feel, a woman who has very liberal theological views, and I was really, brand new Christian, I was blown out of the water. I didn't know this stuff existed. And I went to my assistant minister, and he just, I think from memory, pulled out a couple of Francis Schaeffer books, said, read these, you'll be right. That was it. Now, I'm sure he could have done a little bit more, but you know what? That's all I needed. Got the books, read them. Okay, I was right. Now, if it was another issue uh, and in another context and I was more working class and, and oh, that's not how I was going to learn, he would have had to sit with me and walk through that a whole lot. That would have taken so much more time. That's what I needed. A non-book culture means you, it's going to be much more labor-intensive by default. But that, the issue that was raised actually is part of that. It's more labor-intensive. There are more fractured lives that are in your face more that you actually have to manage. Okay, so uh, that's one. The word incarnate, human stories. Um, oh, I didn't talk about being open, vulnerable, and straight talk. Uh, but I do talk about it somewhere. I think I've got them out of line. I might just come back to that and just talk about... No, I'll go back. No, I'll stick with my structure. That's right. Um, the shared... The shared life of the pastor really is important because of the need to close the gap. And because especially if you're middle class and they're not, they just automatically distance what you're saying, that it's somehow different from you, that really you got it together. You've just got it together. That's what they're thinking. And somehow when you tell them to do something, they'll just say, well, it's easy for you, <laughs> that you somehow don't battle with lust and things. So... Uh, you have to let them into your world. It's not an option. You have to let them into your world. I think you need to do that anyway, by the way, because middle-class people, they just pretend. You know, uh, There's that lovely story. I was with John Woodhouse. He used to be the principal of Moore College. We were both preaching in the same place, and we were talking about how, uh, you know, I think a couple just busted up, and, uh, and I said, you know, they've been, they've been, I've known about this for five years. You know, they've been on the phone to me every week, you know. He says, you know, I have couples. He was at St. Ives, North Shore. He says, I've had couples in my church where they would turn up right up until the Sunday before. They look like perfectly happy. And the next week, I discovered they're actually filing for divorce. He said there's not a clue given because two, different, very, two very different types of people. One who's capable, doesn't like to open up, uh, feels that it's a weakness to show vulnerability to another that thrives on telling you their problems. That's how they define their identity. It's struggle street, right? Man, I don't want to know. Keep it to yourself. Now, that means it's just much more in your face, much more labor-intensive. But at the same time, if you're not opening up, uh, they will, it, it, it actually creates a barrier. So your public prayers reveal your private prayers. Your public passions reveal what's important to you, you know, getting excited about people getting converted as well as godly steps. Um, your confessions are important. My congregation knows my sins. They know that I battle with anger, for example, and I give them a couple of examples. Um, they know um, in the mid-'90s I started uh, 
Sandy would leave the room. I'd tell them this story, you know, uh, at the time, and, and I noticed that uh, when she'd leave, it was that time when SBS, every time SBS showed a movie, the, the lady would drop her clothes in, you know, especially if it was an Italian film, within 15 seconds. And I said, you know, I just noticed I was just flicking over to SBS. All I got into the habit of for about six months. I told them that story. Oh, they come up and they say, thank you so much. I love hearing that. They're not, they're not celebrating my sin. They're just thinking, you know what it's like. That's really, that's my whole goal. I'm bridging the gap. Um, I tell them my struggles. Ten years ago, I had three months where I had kind of acute anxiety. I don't know where it came from, even why it left. But uh, I told them about it. Um, So Now, you may get the impression that every week I'm kind of opening my heart. I'm not. But where it's appropriate and where it fits in the text of Scripture and where I deem it to be helpful, I share it. Like you've got no idea how much they love it. Your congregation's waiting for you to do it if you haven't done it already. Right, okay, that involves errors, um, making mistakes. So this beginning of last year, we discovered we were cash insolvent by $150,000, which if that means anything to you, technically we're not, if we were a company, we'd be illegal. <laughs> um, that is, we had more money out than in by 150000 Anyway, it was a mistake. The actual treasurer had made the mistake, but we stood with him as the parish council and wardens, and we just explained what the error was and um, and that, uh, we, then we tied the future to the vision because we'd put on a worker thinking we had more money in the bank than we did. I had two people come up. They were new to the church and um, they came up with tears and I thought, oh, I'm in trouble here. And they gave me a big hug and kiss and said, oh, thank you so much for not pretending and covering it up. Because at the other church, they just made excuses all the time and they went round the elephant in the room and we just told it straight and then we tied the need for the money with the vision of the church, which you've always got to do with money, of course, and, and it isn't, I still remember their reactions. Their tears were tears of joy because we didn't pretend about the, um, about the mistake. And it means, too, when you do a ministry strategy and it doesn't work, saying it didn't work, it's all right. Uh, tell them about your giving patterns. Uh, I talked about evangelism with Jono. Three stories in five minutes, and I already know this guy evangelizes. Um, uh, your language, I think, needs to be inclusive. Um, so I talk about my Catholic friends, my Pentecostal brothers, um, uh, this really kind Muslim person I was talking to. I, I use adjectives because I don't want to appear narky. I don't want to be narky, so it's about the truth. But I don't want to appear narky either because in the 90s, I think we were up front. And I think all we developed was a narky congregation that was anti-Catholic rather than pro-Jesus. Um, and, uh, and I, th- yeah, so that's, I don't know how much it fits into that, but I thought I'd throw that in. Um, they know about my will. I drop in my, you know, I, I visit my mum every, every week and, uh, that's part of who I am. Um, body language is critical when you're talking to people, you know, the, uh, a welcoming position, giving them time. We had a guy, he's no longer with us. I didn't realize the damage he had done. And he did say this, he says, uh, he bat, not the damage done, no, I shouldn't say it that way. But he, he, he often talked about, sorry, I want to do a backtrack. He, he admitted that he didn't have a poker face. And that is, when people are sharing their struggles, he couldn't but react with his face to the issue. Now, the issue might have been a serious issue, but it's critical that they can tell you their whole story without feeling condemned early on. And so you need, to, you need to be listening and not kind of... They're sensitive to feeling condemned, right? So 
allow them the opportunity to tell their whole, whole story and kind of manage the internal, oh no, this is bad. <laughs> um, um, and it, it's because they feel judged. Interesting, a number have said to me that they felt, and even at the time, that they actually often felt judged by this person. Now he was, he knew the gospel, he was a great man of God. He is a great man of God. But he actually struggled in actually holding back, not communicating judgmental verdicts. And so it becomes important. Right, teaching by modeling. Any questions on that before we move on? Now we get to the word incarnate human stories. Okay, um, people learn through stories. We've discovered that in um, uh, stories are the currency of how people communicate in working class culture. So use stories, use people's stories. Interviews are critical. People, and, and I think, uh, who is it? Um, Rick Warren. He doesn't go Bill Hybel's line of having drama. He says he doesn't like drama. He loves interviews, and he's right on the money on this one. Because what interviews do is tell, allow you a window into how a person is living out the lordship of Christ, really. Especially when you get to see the struggle that they're having and how they've resolved it. So, so we have, you know, they're the obvious conversion stories that we celebrate, but don't stop there. Actually have stories of where people have faced struggles in their life and... Sometimes he's still in the middle of them. They don't have to actually be squeaky clean. In fact, I interviewed this one guy. It ended up being a three-part interview because he, he had this guy, this guy at work who he wanted to kill, who was the security guard who kept paying out on him. And this guy came from a very physical background. You, know, you dealt with your enemies by thumping them, right? <laughs> and so there he's talking about this guy and why he got so hurt by the... And, and I thought, actually, when I prepared him for the interview, I thought he actually worked through it. But by the time I got to the interview, he clearly hadn't. And I thought, well, okay then. What about if we pray for you now and next week, let's see how you'll be able to go and resolve it. Not, no, I don't know where this story was going to end. Well, it didn't, it, you know. But everyone was actually so caught up. But by the third time, I thought, oh, thank you, Lord. He finally resolved it with the help of the saints. <laughs> But um, people found it really helpful. Now, we've got, I don't know, uh, we've got an interview of, um, we've had a, a couple of, a number of marriages uh, hit the rocks, and I thought, we've got to get some stories up of couples who did it tough and worked through it, getting through the brick wall. And so I've got, I, I didn't, I'm not really happy with this interview, to be honest. I would have done it slightly differently. But you'll get a sense of what we're trying to do with interviews with Gab and Rita. They're an Assyrian couple. Um, he got converted about five years ago. She got converted to Morocco in an Anglican church there. They're Assyrian from Iraq or Iran because the Assyrians don't have a, a, a country. Now, this is them sharing their story. Have we got it, Sam? Oh, that's a shame. It happens. Well, I'll keep talking. And then we'll get back to it. So, you know, um, we, we had an adultery take place between uh, a mate and his best mate's wife. Uh, they went off and left, and uh, uh, about three years later, I think they genuinely repented and sent letters of uh, asking for forgiveness and so forth, but they've since married. Uh, over the time, I've interviewed both the victims and because and, they're two beautiful models of forgiveness, 
And uh, we worked through the story of how they felt, the journey of it, the damage adultery does. So when I preached on, and it's always tied to the passage. I'm not gratuitous in this. So if I'm doing so, I did Proverbs 5 to 7 on, on adultery and the warnings of adultery. Um, I try to find uh, a story, an, an interview that connects with that. And then I interviewed Katerina on that one. And again, very powerful. And what it does is, I remember there was someone else who had actually just had an adultery taking place, got so convicted by it, went and repented as a result. Um, so um, uh, it's the whole notion of people get encouraged by people and our, our, really our vision and values really ride on these stories. So can I really commend that as not just once in a while, try to make a game almost every Sunday to have interviews. And what that means is you've got to know your congregation. And, and not just the big stuff, even something like it can be someone who's never really shared their faith. There was one lady, she had never shared her faith any time in her whole life except once when the electrical guy, you know, you know, when they come selling power contracts, you know, and she got to share the gospel with, and she was so stoked. I thought, I want to make a hero out of her. And that's kind of a little theme for me, making heroes out of ordinary people. Like that phrase really kind of registers with me. I want, see what I'm trying to do is, Take that pastor. You know, I really want a, the priesthood of all believers to actually be experienced. Okay. Now, a culture of encouragement. Create a culture of encouragement. They experience a lot of negativity, right? Remember that when we went through that list of things, how one of the ways in which people are kind of brought down is that people laugh at your failures. Remember when we looked at that, that list of things? Uh, they're, they're belittled, and, it, and it's basically to keep people in their place. And so they're afraid to take initiative and so forth. So um, it's just, now I think I've got the gift of encouragement, so it kind of helps, but we try to institutionalize the value of encouragement by our parish council. Every We've got on our agenda, send an encouraging letter to someone in a ministry. So my wife got one the other day uh, from it. So every so we're, we're wired to think that way. Staff. You know, um, we kind of every week plot how many times do we have our quiet times over 20 minutes where we're reading the Bible, okay. And one of them is, who have you sent a letter of encouragement to? So we're trying to institutionalize it because we want to breed encouragement wherever we can. Remember, they're walking around feeling stupid, useless, and uh, with a whole lot of ne- negative self-talk. With, you know, they live in the moment. There's no sense that they can make a difference in their world. And I'm working overtime. I spend all my time trying to encourage people. You could almost summarize what I do that way. Um, now, what stops it from being flattery? What stops it from being flattery? What's the difference between flattery and encouragement? Okay, yeah, yep. So that's one thing. It, it actually has to have the integrity of being accurate, which means you need to be specific. It's not just, aren't you a wonderful person? Saying, look, I noticed the way you, uh, you spoke to that person the other day. Gee, I was encouraged by that. You know, uh, uh, where you've, you've picked up an, an, an event, you've seen something yourself or heard. Nothing, you know, that's the kind of gossip we want, where people are talking up people behind their back. They say the difference between flattery and ga- gossip is that gossip is what you say behind their back but never to their face. Flattery is what you say to their face but never behind their back. <laughs> it's so true. Encouragement is what you say to their face and behind their back. And uh, so I... If you don't have the gift of encouragement, and one of my staff members clearly doesn't, because I said to him, I said, you know, you never encourage me in my sermons. <laughs> and, and the person said, I said, do you find it hard to encourage? He said, yeah. I, I just, it doesn't come naturally to me, and I feel kind of, well, he, he gave some reasons. I, I can't remember what the reasons are. I said, okay, this is your job now. Every week, 
I want you to find something in the sermon that encouraged you and tell me. That's a win-win, right? Because I needed to know he was doing it. I needed to get his thinking in encouragement. Because if he's not doing it to me, you can bet your life he's not doing it to others. You need to learn to encourage up, side, and those who you got oversight of. Um, and, and, he, and he's getting really good. And when he does it, I say, oh, that was a good encouragement. I, you know. That's funny because you're on the receiving end of it. But I said, look, I told him, you don't need to do it to me. I, I'm feeling quite content. But I said, you need to learn to do it. You know, um, encourage one another. So it needs to be specific. It needs to be fairly soon after the events happen where you can pick it up. Wherever possible, do it in public. And, uh, but it only means something if you're able to critique as well. Otherwise, it is flattery. So I, they know if there's something wrong, I'm coming. <laughs> they know I can, I can straight talk on the negative stuff. So when I say a positive and I try to make that the majority of what I say, they know I mean it. Now, um, so we're talking about letting the stories of others encouraging. Now, let me... Uh, we got it? Uh, how long? Yeah, okay. Just to break it up. You need a break from me. So... I don't think this was worked properly. The angles are not right. I would have got Gab smiling a lot. So technically, actually, I don't think it's a good interview, but it's amazing how the impact it had. The beauty of that, it hit a lot of... You've got to understand the context is we've had a number of marriages doing it really hard, and people have been really thinking, what's going on? And that one interview just kind of said, yes, a victory. Satan doesn't always have to win. But you see bedded in that is the place of small groups. See, There's an undercurrent of a whole lot of values carried into that story. Uh, the fact that he, who did he go? He actually went to his growth group. They're both part of growth groups. They shared their problem with their growth group. So we're modeling, go to a growth group, share your struggles with your small group. Um, he talked, see how honest he was? I didn't even know he was going to talk about the suicidal thing. So, whoa. He, he gave you hope and he talked, you know, the whole problem of over-mortgaging. I'm telling you, that is one of the big issues of, pre- of, of struggles in, in working class. They over-mortgage and everything collapses after that. So you've got to train them. That mistake will destroy your Christian life and your marriage. So it, it was, that was, and he just needed to smile more. <laughs> if I was there, if I was, usually I'm there in the interviews because the, the camera guy is not great at getting the best out of people. So that was good, but we just need a bit more smiles. Yep. Um, well, because we want to show it at all services, and sometimes we get the best. Sometimes we do do the front, but someone donated 20 grand for us to do, got a filming guy to do it, so we're using him. And then now that's on the website, because we want people who are checking out our church to find out. See, my values are embedded in that. We're multicultural, you can see. Um, we, we're, a, we're a people who are honest with our struggles. Man, the guy was talking about being suicidal, you know. Um, there was a positive outcome. That he's in community in prayer. Man, I like it. Yeah, we, we, we have a lot of hits on that one. Um, now, I got an email, so um, I'll just read this email to you. I preached on Colossians 1 two weeks ago and touched on Colossians 2.15 about Satan being disarmed. This is what a 17-year-old girl wrote. Just wanted to let you know how encouraged I was tonight. For my whole life, I've cowered before Satan and allowed him to condemn me. It's brought me such comfort and relief to know that at the cross... Jesus has not only saved me from my rebellion, but judged Satan for his. What a great line. Wish I could say that. I feel like Jesus has saved me all over again. I've heard over and over that Satan cannot judge or accuse me, but tonight God has graciously lifted the veil. Then she goes on and talks about some other things in related to her understanding of the place of Satan and her own assurance. Now you get an email like that, 
What do you do with it? Okay, fantastic. You're such an encouragement, Elman. Yeah, I mean, this lady, she's just beautiful. Yeah, so you respond to the person. Yeah, and thank God. Okay, but what, what else would you do? Well, let's think together. This is the whole thing about using examples and creating a culture of encouragement. Right. Beautiful. With her permission, that's going to be communicated. Okay. Uh, places to communicate. With her permission, I sent that. We, we've got a database. I can send emails to whoever I want, whenever I want. Got her permission. That, with another one, went out to everyone. Um, and so I get to encourage her by doing that. They get to read. They find out about... I really get to preach a sermon all over again through her. She's teaching them, you see. She said it better than I did. Listen to that phrase. Jesus not only saved me from my rebellion, but judged Satan's for his and tied it to the cross. I mean, that's gold. So I got her. I, I'm valuing people reflecting on the word and applying it. Um, it goes into the pastor's corner for those who aren't on email, the, the older brigade. So my pastor's corner in the bulletin. So I, 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 and, and it will be mentioned in a sermon somewhere down the track. <laughs> so I get lots of bites of that cherry because she's doing all the work. These things are gold when you get them. Uh, we just happen to have a run where we had quite a number. What's happening is it's now starting to create a culture where, where, where people are kind of realise they get a voice in the congregation. We go, what about 800 on a Sunday, adults and kids? So you can often feel like you get lost, but your voice gets heard. You get my attention when you're interested in faith and repentance. So um, what is it about? Making heroes out of ordinary people. Okay, I've got another one about someone reflecting on 1 Corinthians 12, and I did the same thing with that, but I will move on. Okay, creating a culture of grace. I think we've talked about that, a culture of second chances. Working, um, you know, never give up on the Holy Spirit's work in the, in the life of a person. And um, sometimes it takes three or four attempts, especially with working class people, to either get them involved in a ministry where they're consistent or in leadership. Um, uh, and so you just need to be patient. Um, I've been around for a long time. I get to see stories of people who were, like that guy who's got a son who's a quadriplegic, Sarkis. Uh, quad, at the moment he's a quadriplegic, but we're praying that uh, it's, it's the nerve, the central nervous system will be healed and restored. Now, it took me three goes to get him locked into ministry over a five-year period. Uh, and, and now he's been a senior leader in our church as a deacon for many years. But, oh, you know, that journey probably was about a 10-year journey. Both my wardens are, are Assyrians, both of them, again, not because they were slack or lazy, but because self-doubt, especially in one of them, Iden, beautiful man of God, but is so filled with self-doubt, Every three months, every three, sorry, three times a year, I have to have the one-on-one -on -one conversation reminding him about why he's, why he's so important in that role. And uh, because he keeps, his self-doubt questions keep just undermining his value. Um, just as being a church of grace, um, we had one guy, this is in the early days of MBM, he had a schizophrenic breakdown. He thought I was killing him in his delusional world. Uh, the ambulance came, took him to the... Uh, psych unit at Blacktown Hospital. Um, you know, a year later, he was running a Bible study for me. 
So we don't put people in boxes. The, the capacity to change, and I tell, I mean, I don't mention his name because he's no longer with us. He's moved to a country town. But I use him as an example of we don't give up on people here. Um, now, I wouldn't have, you know, it was a chemical imbalance. He went on the, the, his meds. It flattened him out. He, he reflected correctly on it. You know, it wasn't a moral category. Um, and uh, and uh, he was an excellent uh, Bible study leader. He actually co-ran it with a Greek. He's a Turk. He was a Greek. You know, Greeks and Turks don't get on. The only thing they fought about was who came up with the kebab. I thought, that's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> the Turks are the Greeks. Okay, music is more important than you think. Again, I think it's got to do with the affections. A couple of Well, why is music so important? Okay, absolutely, yeah. It's a, it's a servant to the word of God, music, isn't it? It needs to be done as... You can only do it to the, to the degree that you've got gifts in the church. All we're saying is make sure that you're using those gifts to the best you can. You know? So whenever people whinged about the music, I said, oh, yeah, but you should have heard it three years ago. It's much better now. <laughs> I said, we are a work in progress, but we're moving in the... I'm the original guitarist of MBM for eight weeks until two guys who are now in full-time ministry tapped me on the shoulder and said, brother, we want to relieve you of this burden. <laughs> Which was code for, we want to relieve ourselves of the burden of having to listen to you one more time. Absolutely. It's exactly right. It's, particip- it's participatory. If, if, if the music is out of sync with what we're familiar with in terms of our culture, uh, it, it's a little bit harder to preach unless you're... You've been around forever and, you know, your, your, your culture is your Christian culture. Um, what was the first thing you said? Yeah, I, I was in Bali uh, with Sandy and she was sick for a time and I had a bit of time on my own. I was reading and reflecting on some stuff and I just remembered some really painful experiences. And, you know, it wasn't the sermon that spoke to me. It was actually the songs, the, the songs we sang at church. They ministered the word to my soul and... And the thing is, people are choosing churches now not on the quality of preaching, but on the quality of music. You know that. We don't live 40 years ago. Hillsong has changed the landscape. Sorry. And you can stick your head in the sand all you like, but it has changed the landscape. You have got to be more intentional with the music. Resource them. Encourage them. Because people will decide whether to come, no matter how good you are as a preacher, on the basis of music. You can fight that reality all you like. I thought that was Keller. Keller. Okay, yeah. Um, he, he didn't do it, I think, with lead, people who were leading it, but were the, uh, playing in the background. Yeah, the drummer, the bass guitarist, if they needed to. Look, it jars with me, I've got to tell you. Um, I think they saw it as a temporary stepping stone. Um, you need to, if, it, if you're going to do, go down that road, I think you need to see it as a means to an end and not the end. It, it jars me, I've got to tell you. But... Um, I, I just know, you know, church, people walk away from church as much affected by the music as the sermon. Oh, you can like it a lump, but that's the reality of it. I, so, you know, I don't think it's going to be our issue because we normally don't have, I suppose there's a non-Christian guy who comes in and, and may play who's really good. Yeah, yeah. So my, 
my brother is a really good bassist. He doesn't love Jesus, but he's willing to play for you uh, up the front. That, it's that sort of... That's a, we're not likely to go and pay a professional drummer to come in and, and drum for us. Is that, um, look, I, can, let me put it this way. I don't know what I would do, but I'm not going to judge that because I know where they're heading and I know it was a means to an end and it was temporary. Yep. Okay. So I just don't drag your feet on this issue. I, I'm telling you, you know, and, and if your music is more than five, get this, if your music is more than five years old, it will be out of sync. It's not a question of hymns. The reworking of old hymns with new melodies or just redoing the, a, a, a classic of 15 years ago, so that's, what, that's what we need. The, the constantly reworking it needs to happen. It's, it's interesting. We, we've got a... No, I won't go down the story. Counselling. Self-control, right? How rare. Let's move to counselling. Westies tend to be more vulnerable, right? Um, it's a thing. More my student ministers who come to us say, wow, what I love about MBM is, and I think they're just describing Westie culture, but probably I fed that culture as well, and that is people are fairly open about their struggles, and they found it refreshing, uh, as opposed to kind of more middle-class professional people where there's a resistance to unload. And, um, but what it means is that you're going to be confronted with it, and if, if you're in a small church plant, you do attract a high degree of wackos. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry, that's why we had this smaller the group. I shouldn't say wackos. They're beautiful people. But they're, they're very challenging. <laughs> and because they get an attention, you see, when you're 25, 30, 40, 50, uh, and I'm dysfunctional and, and I like people to hear my problems, it's a little magnet to small churches, you know. And when you're a church plant, you're a small church. And the percentage of dis. Well, put it this way, we ended up having a very healthy ministry in the psych ward at our hospital for about a year or two because we attracted like so many. But when we grew, actually, they stopped coming. Not because we weren't caring for them, but they actually got attention in a way in a small group that they didn't quite get when we were bigger. Now, that, the fact that Wesley's are more open, the temptation for you is to do counselling. Personally, I would discourage you from doing it. A, you're probably not very good at it and you'll do more damage. B, your job is to teach the word and apply it. Now, um, don't mishear me. I'm not into abandoning people. And um, so one of the first things, from the very beginning, I I was connected with a a good biblical counselor in the area. His name was Tim Hudson. He's since passed away. Um, And uh, we have a number of biblical counsellors in our congregation. But I'm constantly on the the awareness of where good counsellors are because uh, take a guy who got converted beginning of last year. Um, Vietnamese refugee in the 80s, uh, he's about 30, 35, um, father was a gambler, uh, shot at his mum, Put used to wake him up with a gun to his face, the guy's got issues, lived in a brothel here in, um, in, uh, in Melbourne uh, at 14, was doing armed robberies at 15, um, went on ice for 14 years, the guy's going to have issues, right? <laughs> he's wrestling with some stuff. Um, now, he's seeing a counsellor doing fairly intense work with that. Now, I'm, I can meet up with him, I, we can talk, but in the end, I'm not doing the counselling. I'm defining the two roles fairly differently. Um, uh, a, it's labour-intensive. You get a number of them, you're not going to do anything else. Um, and so I really want you to see counsellors as your friends. So much so, we pay for, I pay for people to go. I always want them to contribute a little bit. Secondly, I, I, I say I've been, it was excellent. Thirdly, by the way, so does Keller, you're quite open about, uh, a lot of the guys are quite open 
uh, in big churches about um, the fact that they've been to counselling. And, and my piece de resistance is this. I say this on a regular basis. Half of you have been to counselling. The other half need to go. <laughs> they think I'm laughing, but sure enough. And you know who I can't get? White, middle-class males. They are the hardest to get, and they need to go. Um, and sometimes you need to go just for the sake so you can tell them <laughs> that they can go. Because you, it, it, I've seen so many guys liberated in particular, working through those issues, facing the issues with their dads. Now, it's not that I'm not having conversations with them. I don't abandon them. I said, I still want to contact with you. But after an initial session, I said, you need, you need to see Ratsi. He's one of the counsellors of the church. And, um, and so I work in partnership with the counsellors that I know and trust and recommend them. Well, any comments on that? You can come back at me, yeah. No, he shouldn't because you've got to keep the confidentiality only to the extent that uh, the person going to him has given permission for that. Usually they do, you know, they don't mind because they've pretty much told me the general stories, you know. It's, it, you know what I call it? Fine-tuned discipleship, bringing the gospel of grace to bear in the brokenness of life. That's, that's how I see counselling when it's done well. So we've got a brother who's a counsellor. Where are you? Okay, yeah. So, you know, the moment I'd note that down. God, if I lived in this area, I'd note that down. Peter. And, uh, and I think, right, I'd, you know, I want to get to know him. So you get to know the counsellor, where they're coming from, and, and uh, what's their frame of reference. And, but in the end of the day, I'll see him as an ally in my ministry. Yeah. This is key with working class people. Was that more an outreach thing or just do you want to? Multiple goals. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And look, you know, it's very nice to be needed, <laughs> but you've got to keep doing the thing that no one else is doing. Um, I can get other people doing that. Um, but they can't preach well on Sunday for me uh, because they haven't, got, they haven't been allowed the time and the resources to do it. I have. That's why I'm there. That's my job. Um, now, that's a slightly different issue. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And look, if you're in, a, in an area where there just aren't many Christian counsellors, um, I know it becomes difficult and uh, I, I'm mindful of that. But in an area like this, I'd be surprised if you can't access someone in a 30. Because I keep saying to someone, if you had a heart attack, you'd go and see a surgeon an hour from now. Well, your marriage is more important. You know, better you die than you know, leave your wife. Go, you know, I'm that blunt. Uh, you need to be straightforward um, and uh, motivate them to go. <laughs> okay. Uh, the other thing is with the whole issue of addictions and so forth. So we have once a month a uh, overcomers outreach group where they go within a Christian framework to wrestle with you know anything from self harming to anorexia to um, gambling and so forth. Now the guy who runs it used to be in our church, doesn't anymore. But 
you know, finding those places that help people battle in, in chronic addictions and compulsive behaviours, uh, they need to be in community with others, led by someone who's got his head screwed on or got her head screwed on well in those issues. Okay, understanding why... Yeah, yeah sure, and you've got to get involved there. Yeah. Right, uh, it's a specific issue. Um, well, everyone knows... You know, I tell people, uh, I say ladies, sometimes it's men who get bashed up by women. I had one, one he's, she used to take him out the back and thrash him. But, uh, but usually it's the woman who's the power. I say, ladies, if your husband is beating you, I'll be the first to pack your bags. That is unacceptable. You know, just getting him to the point where they deem it unacceptable. So the guys know I'm saying it up the front, and so are the girl, ladies. Really, it's that journey. Look, I've got someone in leadership who was involved in domestic violence, you know, 15 years ago, uh, got converted. Um, and has got a, an excellent marriage. Um, but it's a journey of, um, if they're Christian or non-Christian, that, you know, w- that thing needs to be worked out. They, need to, they needed to go to counselling, and they did. They went to Tim, who uh, was the original counsellor I mentioned. Uh, he had repented. Uh, I'm, I'm not quick to bring people together if they're being domestic violence, unless I'm sure, you know, I want, and you know, the trust needs to be earned in those stories, you know. Um, so they... If you go too quickly and get two people back together and they haven't worked through the issue and he hasn't dealt with his anger behaviour. So, uh, I really, I can't give you the quick answer. Uh, as I, the more I'm talking, I realise it's a little bit complicated. Um, but then you just work with someone who's worked with people who've done experienced domestic violence uh, or ex- with people who are v- um, victims or offenders in domestic violence and work that journey out, yeah. And sometimes the marriage can be restored and sometimes it can't, yeah. Right. Learning to understand why people's... Um, what's the next one? No one? Oh, look at that. No one's been speaking. Okay, understand why people serve. I, I saw this. This, was, this is a secular thing about why volunteers serve. Uh, and you can say tick more than one reason. And this is what people said. It was a large secular... Have you, anyone seen this before? Why people... Apart from my wife. Sam, you just can't put up your hand. You, anyone else? Okay, 81% say they volunteer for a cause. 61 understand the world and develop their skills. 62% they feel good about themselves. 56 say they love the social interaction. 36% reduce guilt or negative feelings. You know, I'm feeling guilty about this problem. I want to solve my guilt by going and helping. 22% career development. You know, so they see if I volunteer for something, I can step into the company maybe in whatever, or the uh, non-profit organisation. Now, that's a very helpful tool because that really intersects with biblical principles well. Most people will volunteer for a cause. That's why getting your vision very clear... Is, is important. Ty, your volunteers need to know why they're doing it. Sandy's probably the best at it of all my ministry leaders because she paints the big picture for why we're doing this ministry and tying the particular role. If I am a car park attendant, how is that connected with the cause of the gospel? You join the dots for them. Uh, so th- there's the general encouragement, but they need to see the relationship between the kingdom of God and the glory of God with you know, wearing an orange jacket and helping people find a car spot. Um, understanding the world, developing their skills. Um, I'm not sure about the understanding of the world. I know developing skills, uh, I often say to, to, to people who are thinking about uh, single people, thinking of doing children's ministry, I said, or people who want to be teachers, I said, you'll get excellent training and discipline and working with children if you work under Sandy far more than you'll ever get because she just happens to be a good trainer. And those skills will actually transfer actually into secular work. 
feeling good about themselves. You know, why does John write his letter so that my joy may be complete? You know, there's the, what do they call it? The happiness, uh, helping happiness. You know, you know, there's a big study. There's a department in one of the big Ivy League universities uh, and it studies happiness. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it shows the relationship between volunteering and, and that going God's way, we were built to be other person-centered and um, etc. Social interaction. For some, the team, the experience of being on a team is so satisfying for them. Uh, anyway, my point there is know why people, the, the, people volunteer for more than one reason and you can have more than one motivation in doing a good thing. And f- finding those kind of principles and interfacing them with where the person's at. So when I think of Iden, my warden, I need to remind him that he that his role is important and why it's connected with the gospel. Um, I need to remind him, I said, you know when you do a good job, how do you feel about it? He said, I love it. I said, that's exactly right, because you were, you, you were cut out for this kind of work. Um, I said, how do you get on with the other wardens? He said, I love, I love it when we have meetings. I said, yeah, I'm drawing his attention to, to some of these principles. Now, the, the, the issue I want to get to is understand why people don't serve, again, particularly amongst uh, Westies. They don't feel like they're, they're needed, you know, um, that everything's running, humming well, uh, that they're not gifted, again, self-doubt, that they're not effective, um, so that even, you know, they might be gifted, but not that gifted. It doesn't really make that much difference. They have a fear of not being able to persevere because they've started many things and not finished them, and that means I'm going to disappoint you, so I'm not going to start. Um, fear of being used. Um, and so all volunteer coordinators need to see that people are not a means to an end. You say you're forever... You're ever making sure that it's a pastoral relationship with them. Fear of criticism, because remember, uh, none of us like feedback, and, uh, and, and, and so feeling like I'm going to be criticised. But making sure people don't burn out is the volunteer coordinator's responsibility. Teaching the yes-no principle, you need to be able to say yes and no. Um, not at the same time, but if I'm always a yes person, I'm going to burn out. If I'm always a no person, then I'm, I'm resisting God's call to serve. So I need to learn when to say yes and when to say no. Leadership in the West, oh, get ready because it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. It takes two or three times longer than in middle class. Why? Because they don't have any secular experience of leadership. That's why. It's not rocket science. They've not had it modeled for them. Daddy didn't go off and you know, watch over a company or a business or whatever. Um, there's a lot more hold-handing. You need to join the dots. You need to take them through the steps. You need to have their backs. Andy was telling me a story about a girl. She was setting up for a volunteer coordinator, and she was tentative. And Sandy just started speaking to her fears. She said, you know, I'm going to have your back here, that if the kids uh, muck up and you, and you need help, come and get me. That's all right. And she just started speaking to her fears. And now the, the girl is doing an excellent job in her role. She's empowered. And once you do it, uh, because Sandy's a good trainer as well, and if you don't train your people, you set them up for a fall. Uh, there's a high rate of fallout, but the beauty of hanging around church long enough, doing long-term planting, is that you get to see the benefits of seeds that are sown a decade earlier. All my leaders, you've, but first and foremost, is you've got to see your job to raise up leaders. So I now, all my staff, I have six full-time staff, every one of them has to run a leadership group. They don't run ordinary growth groups because I realised they weren't thinking in terms of leadership. So we're in the process of writing up a program. I'm three quarters of the way through it. I have to keep moving. Now, it's, what's, what's the time? 
What? I thought it was was like half past. I haven't done anything about ethnic work. Okay, that's it. Right. Let's show the DVD. That might... You need to cast... I'm going to drop everything now and talk to you about... In 15 minutes of my ethnic work. Talk about bad planning. (laughs) I think... I've shifted my ground on this. I started MBM as a, on the homogeneous principle, you know, like attracts like. And it's true. The church growth movement has taught us that uh, you will get quicker growth that way. And I think the homogeneous principle is right when it's outreach ministry. But theologically, I've become more convinced that, that the multi-ethnic, multi-demographic approach actually is better. That if your congregation doesn't look anything like the, congr- the, the community that you're in, uh, the fact that we've got now the most, you know, in the United States, the most segregated time in the whole week in the United States now is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Blacks go to black churches, Hispanics go to Hispanic churches, whites go to white churches. And we're trying to tell the world that we're one in Christ. We've got a gospel apologetic right under our nose and we've let it slide. The world has caught up. Every other part of their world is multi-ethnic now, except their church. Now, the worst part of that is racism, you know, where you get the Mahatma Gandhi story where he goes, I think it was in South Africa, and starts reading Sermon of the Mountain, goes to the local church to find out more about Jesus and is told by the ushers, perhaps you'd prefer to worship with your own people, <laughs> you know. That's, you know, and when I, when I, <laughs> one church started using another church and they said, we don't want to do anything together. Why? Because we were afraid that our kids might, Marry your kids. So there's a racism lurking beneath this that we've got to go for. It's been tolerated for too long, I think. Um, now, I know what's happened is fifth-generation mono-ethnic churches are now using the homogeneous principle to justify it. You know, Koreans attract the best to attract Koreans and all that. I understand that argument. I was there. Although God kind of undermined my own philosophy by bringing the world, because now it's 60 different ethnic groups, but we've, we've, we're, we're, we're going to get so caught behind that in the end, the world is going to wake up and see it for what it is. And in the end, it's just not healthy for us. You know, you can't look back to the promise. You know, every Sunday I get to look back at Genesis 12 and see God kept his promise to bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham. I get to see the congregation as anticipating Revelation 7 and the gathering from every nation around the throne. I get to see that our diversity reflects the diversity and unity of the Trinity. I get to recognize that the church, the wall of hostility has been demolished, a la Ephesians 2, between Jew and Gentile, barbarian and Scythian. Um, if you're in a mono-ethnic church and a mono-demographic church, because sometimes you know, you're in a primarily Anglo-Saxon area, say, or whatever, it doesn't matter what it is, um, then I understand that, but as someone said, if there's someone who cleans the house, then if there's someone whose house is clean, then there's probably someone who cleans the house. And that even the demographic, it's not just a, an ethnic issue, it's a multi-demographic issue. And we need to, it's much harder, I grant you this, it is much harder work, but it's got to be on our agenda and radar to actually want a multi-ethnic, multi-demographic church, if that indeed is what our communities are. Uh, any questions on that as I think about what few things I can say to you at this point? In bringing it together? Oh, look, I think, um, let me answer it this way and by going into the, what little time I have for this talk. Cause it, 
you've got to kind of get the vision first. The leader's got to get the vision. Sorry. If I don't work off my notes, it'll be even more ramblings than it is. Um, so is your question, how do we get people on site from different backgrounds working together in a church that's so filled with people who are so different? Or want to... um, I think I said to someone that one of the chapters ends with really how I was going to originally end the last section, and that is love covers a multitude of sins. And, you know, it's amazing how, firstly, um, you yourself being someone who loves your people, whoever comes through that door, and creating genuine community actually has its own level of attraction. Um, uh, I think there is a sense of trying to get the excitement. So people like coming because of the novelty. There's a novel element to it. You get such different people together. So you, it's really getting your vision. Where it's going to work is getting the core team on board with the vision and then celebrating diversity coming together wherever you can. Um, so uh, my sister still remembers the day when she came to church and there was a guy from that heavy metal he was a tattooist. Not, it's not so edgy now, but, you know, 15 years ago, it was really quite edgy. You never saw kind of people like that at church, talking to a sort of a middle-class um, uh, government worker, and they're just having fellowship. And she said, Ray, you've got no idea how weird that is. And, and it's getting excited about the fact that the diversity... So it's a theological thing. It's, it's starting with the vision for you, sharing that vision with your core team, um, which then gives them an inclusivist model whenever anyone comes. So you're working hard at making sure everyone feels like there's a home in this place for you. That's, it's, that's, that's really the hard work because people often come for issues just for them and, and getting them to think on a broader vision. We just don't want to be a white middle-class church. And so the more they get hold of that vision, and the way to do it is kind of take them to churches. I don't think people can often get it until they see it. So I think, uh, with the multi-ethnic thing anyway, getting them to... But you may want to do, uh, find those churches where you do have broad range of classes together. Take them to churches. I would take them, if I was in Sydney, to ours, but I don't think we'd do it anywhere near the best. Parkside Baptist, about half an hour from where I live, they are the best at it. I, I, I say to people, go take your leadership group to that church, let them see it and feel it. I, I should get them, get them to see the vision of, of it displayed like in a video like i said is that the kind of church you want to be a part of because they need to see what it looks like you know 95 percent of people can't get i think they need to see a picture of what it looks like when it's when it's working so that okay how then do we get there then becomes a secondary question an important one but unless they get the picture final picture they won't move uh, otherwise they'll just see in terms of you know is the church um uh, got a good preacher or whatever so oh skipping 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 okay so Yep. It's a powerful apologetic, isn't it? You know, who you have up the front determines who you're likely to attract. So we work on a quota system. We make sure there's ethnic diversity, age diversity, gender diversity, so that any time anyone comes to the assembly, I mean, you can only use who you've got, so when you're an early church plant, it's limited. But all the time you're trying to say, I want... Anyone who comes to see if there's someone who is like them up the front, then maybe there's a place for them. Um, and I, I just think, you know, there are middle-class people who really loved, love the idea of fellowshipping. You know, 
A guy, Jason Frey, he's a wealthy dentist, and he loves hanging with a broad diversity. There are a group of people that, you know, want to break the, the, the monochrome world that they live in and, you know, get out of their suit and just rub shoulders with her. And that, it feeds their soul. And, and I, I don't know, I, I, in fact, I'll give you this example. So Jason's the doctor, uh, the, the dentist, right? They're on big bucks. Um, uh, very capable and so forth. Joe, remember that I said two guys do the welcoming. Joe, Joe is the one who, whose wife left him for his best mate's wife. Anyway, Joe, you know, Jason said, I, I come to church and I just sometimes just look at Joe and I think, here he is, in spite of everything that's happened. And he just looks at him and is inspired by his very existence of this man who's prepared to forgive uh, such difficult circumstances. And you think, one's a factory worker, one's a dentist. And that beautiful interface, cross-culture, I mean, one's Maltese, one's Assyrian, but that's not the distinctive thing. Actually, it's probably their demographic that's really different in terms of class. And I, I think, tell, and I tell, I tell Joe what Jason says, um, you know, how he's been encouraged by him and, and keep working that story of encouragement. And so we need, you know, that's why I said to you, I said, if I was doing that church, my little byline would be, we need each other and, and, and make that, the driving force. We need each other. Because that offsets that kind of somehow thinking that the, the rich boys are here to save this church. And we need to hear constantly stories from the middle class saying, guys, you, you know, whatever blessing I've been to you, you have been far more of a blessing to me. And, that, and that's often what happens. Uh, that's what I've discovered. So giving a voice to that mutual respect and recognition is helpful. Uh, yeah, yeah, what to do, what to talk about in two, two minutes, nothing. I'll just keep... Any other questions? Because there's too many things to say, not enough time to say them. Staffing, eventually what it means is you'll need to staff your church with people who represent the demographic you're trying to reach. We've not been... I realise, you know, I, uh, I had a large Anglo enclave in my staff. Um, you know, I had a Port Portuguese MTS worker, I had a Maltese MTS worker, got a Chinese um, pastor. So, so working hard at when you're interviewing, I think we need someone who represents the different demographics. And so even in my leadership group that I've got, I've purposely, I know we've got large amounts of Fili Filipinos and Indians in our immediate area. So I've been particularly trying to look for uh, people with potential leadership amongst those two ethnic groups. So I've got three Tamil speak no, Indians uh, in uh, my leadership group that I purposely hunted out because leadership is hard. And now I want to say never appoint someone to a role because they're ethnic. Like I don't know how many times that mistake has happened. They still need to be, you know, godly. They still need to have giftedness in that area. But work hard at trying to find them. If you can't find them in your area, you need to go headhunt them uh, when you put on that next worker because that is critical. Talked about being upfront. Um, uh, the singing uh, is, 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 is important. We, we're multi-ethnic, but I don't think we're really multicultural. I think our music is still kind of monochrome. Uh, it used to be a bit more ethnic diversity in it uh, in the early days when one of those guys I mentioned actually used to write uh, Middle, Middle Eastern sounding songs, but we're pretty much now mainstream, and I think we need to work on that. Food's critical. Um, your signage uh, We've got three translation booths we've just installed so that we can have three people groups, language groups, uh, having, um, having the sermon translated in their own. It's been a pain in the neck, let me tell you. So hard trying to get that happening. Sorry? 
live. Yeah, so they're in three little... People think they're confessional booths. I said, no, no, I've left that. Um, so there's three booths, and they will get the sermon coming in, and then they will interpret it. Um, and it will kind of... There's a couple of black boxes that... I think it's infrared. It works off infrared. And so you get little receivers with it, and you can just hear the English sermon in Arabic or... Yeah. But... It hasn't happened yet. Everything's installed. We're just, just about to pull it, make it happen. I can see you're a practical man there, brother. <laughs> we have an auditorium that seats about 450, uh, Small foyer, um, uh, a hall that you can sit 200 in to eat. Uh, works off a kitchen that feeds outside, inside. Uh, six uh, rooms that can turn into three large double rooms for the kids' program or Bible studies or ESL. Um, some offices, and then we've got away from the site a whole bunch of offices uh, uh, in admin, yeah, yeah. And it's also used for some ministry as well. Uh, but up until three years ago, we basically lived out of a, a trailer and um, and uh, and a high school for twenty years. I've been we've been moving for twenty years in public uh, in public buildings. Uh, know that know the uh, characteristics of your 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 people, your ethnic uh, demographics, as we've seen with the working class. Uh, know their struggles. Uh, know their story. So, you know, in Assyrian, they're landless. They don't, you know, they had a great history, uh, but, uh, well, maybe not so great if you're a part of the Ten Tribes. Um, but, you know, they are a people who come from Iran and Iraq. Interestingly, each of them are different. Assyrians from Iraq are very different from Assyrians from Iran. Uh, like Sudanese, depends on which tribe they come from. So, uh, an adjacent minister to me, Jeff Bates, he actually went to Sudan to the very villages where the people from his church go to. Isn't that impressive? Now, I thought, he's a pastor. I'm a Mickey Mouse. He's actually doing it. And he went for about two weeks and visited the various villages from whence he has a Sudanese congregation. So he works off a homogeneous model, partly because of the language. By the way, we have an Arabic-speaking congregation, um, but we see it as a halfway house and it's more evangelistic and the aim is to, in getting converted, is to actually bring them into the congregation because now we can translate for them in the assembly. Uh, and know the sins of your people as well. And I'll make this the last point, will I, Scott? Thank you. Um, so a good example of uh, knowing the sins of your people, when we do the Walks for Christ conference, um, uh, so these are our, 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 our electives. Uh, what is it about your wogs and cash? Because... The money thing is kind of a distinctive thing. Um, feuds, grudges, and vendettas. <laughs> That's our elective because <laughs> it's such an issue. Superstition and wogs. <laughs> honouring God versus honouring family. Uh, see, they're all, you don't normally get them in kind of straight uh, Anglo-Saxon weekend away or seminars, you know. But we're trying to work out these are the issues people are dealing with and need the word of God applied to it. So know their struggles, know their histories, and know their sins so you can speak to it. And it is a great blessing and, and, uh, to actually have so much diversity. And I tell you, it helps you see your own culture and it helps you see what's... Um, you know, you, I remember one time we had four guys from four different church backgrounds and it was leading into Easter and the, I think that was Assyrian, Maltese, Greek and something else, Egyptian. And, you know, three out of the four, I think, were from Orthodox backgrounds. And it was interesting. They all had a different tradition. One of them said, no, you're not allowed to eat meat on Friday, on Good Friday. No, 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 you can eat meat, but what you can't do is you can't shave. Now, the other one said, yeah, you can shave, you can't shower. And then the other one said, no, no, you can't. And I, and I thought, you didn't say any more. 
it became evident what was a tradition and what was the word of God. And it was just a nice little window to remind me of how we help each other. Diversity helps us read the Bible better and helps us separate what's tradition and what's the word of God. Thanks.